China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the country is governed. Welcome to Pekingology, a podcast that unpacks China's evolving political system. I'm Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS. And this week, I'm joined by Ashley Yesserin, an Associate Professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Alberta. Today, we'll be discussing his recent paper, Propaganda as a Lens for Assessing Xi Jinping's Leadership. Ashley, thanks for joining us. Pleasure to be with you, Jude. So I wanted to start out by asking you about your intellectual background, about your career trajectory. How did you find your way to studying Chinese politics? I know you study a range of issues, Taiwan as well, but for our purposes here, how did you become interested in China's political system and and what or who helped shape your approach to research? I love the question. I started... Uh, thinking about East Asian politics as a university student in Japan. I happened to be there when the bubble was bursting on the Japanese economy. And I kind of thought I would like to be an academic at some point, but it didn't seem like a study of Japanese politics was the way forward then. Uh, So I found my way uh, to Taiwan where I learned Chinese. And then I went to grad school in New York at uh, Columbia. And I had some great professors like Andy Nathan and Tom Bernstein, Yu Xiaobo, Ben Liebman in the law school. And their gravity kind of tugged me away from uh, Taiwan and, and toward studies that related to, to China. I did spend a brief period of time as a journalist. So uh, my dissertation topic was about the, the Chinese media uh, and how commercialization was changing its operations uh, and what that might mean for politics. So I got tugged away from my interest in Taiwan. I, I been researching now political communication in, in China for a while. So the, the article that we'll, we'll talk about today is kind of a recent effort to, to use the media as a way of understanding some aspect of Chinese politics. Um, so I've been uh, mining in this area for a while, and I, I guess I, I'm having fun, so I'll keep doing it. <laughs> so the, the reason that I was really struck by this article is... And as you write it towards the end of the article, uh, without giving away the plot too early here, you, you find that indeed Xi Jinping's, uh, the frequency with which Xi Jinping shows up in people's daily really towers over previous leaders. And as you say, to some extent, sure, we, 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 we knew that. But what I really liked about it is it went in, I think, a lot of detail to help us understand the the, the ways in which Xi Jinping towers over other figures, and, and also looking at other areas of not only Xi's own elevation, but a diminution of other leaders um, showing up, um, also did a really interesting comparison of Xi Jinping with Mao. But the, the real sort of fundamental reason why I was interested in this is it seems to be the case 10 years into his time in office, we're still debating in the public square how powerful he is is there the possibility that, you know, this time he's gone too far and maybe at Beidaiho, Jiang Zemin is going to hobble over and, you know, take away his general secretary cap? And so any inputs, uh, quantitative inputs that we can get into this to help us make better assessments one way or the other about the extent of Xi Jinping's power just strike me as incredibly helpful, especially as we move into an increasingly opaque box of Chinese politics. So that throat clearing out of the way, 
um, that at least was my real interest in this and what I hope we can explore through, through our discussion today. But let me start at a, you know, a kind of a really foundational level of can you just help explain what a Xi Jinping effect is, which is in the, the title of this? And maybe as a part of that, can, can you just help us understand a bit of, of the role of the, the People's Daily here? It's, I'm not sure many average Chinese citizens are starting their day with a cup of coffee in the People's Daily. So who cares what the People's Daily says? Sure. So the, the idea of a Xi Jinping effect, which I am kind of looking for in the propaganda sphere in the context of this article, emerged from a, a conference that I hosted at Banff a couple of years ago that's led to now an edited volume that's tentatively called The Xi Jinping Effect, Political Leadership in Contemporary China, and a separate uh, special issue of the Journal of Contemporary China in which my article appeared. Um, but when I'm talking about the Xi Jinping effect, I'm referring to the impact of Xi's leadership on various aspects of Chinese politics, economics, social life, and even global governance. And in my article, I'm looking at the utilization of propaganda to bolster Xi's position as paramount leader. And in doing so, I, I find what I see is a Xi Jinping effect, a big impact. And I attribute this to Xi and his supporters. I see them as having encouraged China's official media to really make him the face of political authority in a way that's unprecedented in the history of the People's Republic, even during the Mao period. One of the ways that I do this is by looking at the People's Daily. Uh, I see the coverage of the People's Daily of leaders, or the lack thereof, as a proxy for the projection of political influence within the party leadership. And I hope that my examination of People's Daily content uh, would permit me to make some inferences about changes in Chinese political leadership over time. So the, the follow-up to that, Ashley, is just can you help us explain a little bit about the People's Daily? Um, we had done a previous podcast, a, a deep dive in, into the People's Daily. But for your purposes, who cares? Why does the People's Daily matter if it's not widely read by the general populace? Well, uh, the People's Daily is presently and historically seen as a mouthpiece of the Central Committee of the Chinese Communist Party. It has been a kind of official newspaper of record for a really long period of time. So we've got lots of data on its articles and coverage over time, although it's accessible in different ways. And yes, you know, you're, you're, on, you're on to something when you say that it's, it's, it's not important to the average citizen. It's not for sale, you know, on newsstands. I don't know how many papers are for sale on newsstands around China these days anyway. I haven't been in a couple of years. But what you see in the People's Daily are an indication or indications of the importance of a political leader's thinking and actions. So I treat the coverage of leaders in the People's Daily as, as this sort of proxy for, for how much they matter to uh, the people who control the content of the People's Daily. Now, does the appearance of a leader in the People's Daily uh, serve as a proxy for power in the Chinese political system? I would argue no, but it is an indication of what the political authorities in China believe, you know, top leaders' priorities are and, and maybe what top leaders want to see. So I treat it as this transcript that can be mined to, you know, come to some conclusions about you know, how important she is relative to other leaders or, you know, how unimportant other leaders can become, perhaps immediately after he becomes paramount leader. Yeah, and as you made that last comment, I was thinking of poor old Li Keqiang. But can we... Now and just unpack a little bit more how sizable a difference is this Xi Jinping effect relative to past leaders. Can you just give us some sort of comparative 
baseline assessment here. Is this a, a marginal Xi Jinping effect or, you know, how significant of a, a bounce are we seeing here? It's a pretty significant Xi Jinping effect. And I'll just walk the listeners through a little bit of how I did this analysis. So I'm looking for a Xi Jinping effect in propaganda. I conduct a couple of different types of media content analysis. The first step was to use a search function of, of the CNKI database, and I'm restricting search returns to articles appearing in the People's Daily from the year 2000 to 2018. My aim was to track down all articles mentioning the Politburo Standing Committee members by name from the 16th to the 19th Party Congress as well as the names of paramount leaders such as Mao Zedong, Deng Xiaoping, Jiang Zemin, Hu Jintao, and Xi Jinping. As a second phase of the, the project, I conducted six case studies that provided a more focused comparison of media coverage of Xi Jinping compared to Mao. And these case studies examine a month of news coverage during an international crisis, a major recti rectification campaign, and a time of mass mobilization. For the Mao period, this included the 1950 Chinese decision to send troops to fight in the Korean War, the 1956 announcement of the Hundred Flowers campaign, and the onset of the Cultural Revolution in, in 1966. For the Xi period, the cases were the 2008 U.S.-China trade war, the anti-corruption campaign in 2014, and the launch of the 2020 People's War on COVID. And to my findings, here are some of them. When the People's Daily coverage of Xi is compared to the same paper's coverage of Xi's immediate predecessor, Hu Jintao, we see that the People's Daily mentioned Xi more than twice as much as Hu during the first full year following the selection of both men to the position of CCP General Secretary. So, for example, in 2003, Hu Jintao appeared in 294 articles, whereas the People's Daily mentioned Xi Jinping 734 times in 2013. The vast difference in coverage of the leaders continued in subsequent years. To give another example, in the first a year following the commencement of the leader's second five-year term as general secretary, Hu Jintao was mentioned in 568 articles in 2008, and Xi Jinping mentioned 1,366 times in 2018. When People's Daily coverage of Xi is compared to past leaders like Mao or Deng Xiaoping, or even Jiang Zemin, we see that the coverage of Xi far surpasses that of past leaders like Mao and Deng. And in 2018, to just choose a year somewhat arbitrarily, these two leaders were mentioned 60 times, whereas Xi was mentioned 1,366 times in that same year, 2018. While you would expect to see more coverage of a sitting leader than his predecessors, I thought when I found this that the magnitude of the difference was telling. Now, to briefly compare coverage of Xi to Jiang, who was a very powerful leader in his day, we see more major differences. In Jiang's final year as the PRC president, chairman of the Central Military Commission, and general secretary of the party, 2002, he appeared in People's Daily Reports 562 times. This is 172 times fewer, roughly 25% less, than was the case for Xi Jinping in his first full year as CCP general secretary. To go further, People's Daily mention of contemporary leaders on the Politburo Standing Committee, including Premier Li Keqiang, shows decreasing coverage of everyone but Xi over time. Uh, Li Keqiang appeared in 60% as many reports as Xi in the five years following the 18th Party Congress, but in roughly one-third as many in 2018, the year following the 19th Party Congress. By comparison, Hu Jintao's Premier Wen Jiabao was mentioned something like 75%, as much as who, 
during the decade in which they both served on the Politburo Standing Committee. So there's some some big differences in the way that she has appeared in, in media coverage. And I argue in this piece that the relative de-emphasis of the activities of other national leaders, past or present by the People's Daily, suggests that there's been a departure from the dungest priority of collective leadership during the Xi era. And that was another really striking finding is, on the one hand, a, a clear elevation of Xi Jinping over other paramount leaders, but also a relative de-emphasis of subsidiary, you know, or nominally peers within within the party. And again, that, that's one of these that is quite intuitive just in observing, you know, China's political system over the past decades. But it's really nice to see some numbers put to this that visualize that shift that took place. The other thing I found really interesting, I want to ask you about this next, is you describe how Xi Jinping serves as the, quote, personification of the government in state media. I was recently, as one does, reading about Stalin, and there's an anecdote where, I don't know if this is apocryphal or not, but I like it, so I'm going to use it. Stalin's son, Vasily, gets in trouble for something, and Stalin sort of pulls his son, grabs him you know, by, roughly by the lapels, and says, you can't do this, you know, you're, you're a Stalin. And Vasily says to his father, no, I'm not a Stalin, and you're not a Stalin either. Stalin is the Soviet Union. Right, that 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 Stalin had had almost his son saw this like this not only not only not a personalist deification, but actually sort of Stalin becoming this essence of Soviet power, where he sort of transcended an individual identity. And so, I when I saw the use this phrase, I would had just read that anecdote, which I thought was striking. And so, I don't know if I'm in the uh, similar territory with that anecdote about you know Stalin's image sort of becoming the very epitome of Soviet power, which, which must have had a, an important effect in, in protecting him politically, I think, as maybe that wasn't the intention, but certainly had that knock-on effect. So that long question, rambling question out of the way, is there any similarities in those, in those two phrases? And, and what do, you know, why might, through propaganda, Xi Jinping be trying to graft his own image onto the sort of core of, of the government? I think the simple answer is that it worked for Mao, and Xi Jinping figures it could work for him. Um, there is you know, some sense to you know, leaning on cultural or political traditions as a way of empowering yourself as a, as a leader. And I think you know, the magnitude of this Xi Jinping effect in propaganda does suggest the emergence of a Stalinist cult of personality. A few scholars have written about this in, in articles. There is the view that in certain parts of the country, like Xinjiang, uh, you know, talking about Xi or having his poster in your home is almost like a talisman that can protect you from political harm. Is is this about Xi, the person who, uh, you know, undoubtedly is a is a husband and a and a dad and and all the things that a, that a person is? No, I, I think I think you're onto something in that um, the way that his image, his his authority has been fused with state authority is very deliberate. And it's intended to give him longevity politically and an outsized power. Uh, I think initially, you know, in the years of his rise, the inclination to do this through propaganda emerged from insecurity. He was seeing a country in crisis. He was trying to make major changes uh, with 
the anti-corruption campaign to silence uh, critics and to get the party's attention and to launch rectification of the party, use the party to save China. And he was, he was seeing a world around him, whether in, you know, in domestic politics or internationally, that seemed hostile and dangerous. You know, he was trying to fight a battle for public opinion on the internet and contest uh, the influence of the United States and, and other potential adversaries uh, abroad. So I, you know, I think uh, the impulse to create this personality through propaganda, another means, the gun is very important in this respect, is, you know, it, it's something that came from initial insecurity, but it has grown. Uh, it, it, it has taken on tremendous stature. And, you know, we'll have to wait and see what the longevity of this political power is. But if, if it were for Mao, there is a chance that it can work for Xi. We're talking about leaders in two very different times, though. You know, Mao in the 20th century and Xi in the 21st century. And the 21st century comes with the dissemination of information much more rapidly than was, was possible during Mao's time. Much more scrutiny and lots of polarization. So I would guess that it's going to be difficult uh, for Xi to continue to, to burnish this image of him as himself as this, this folksy person who eats buns in Beijing restaurants and who you know, cares what the common people think and, and visits the elderly in hospitals uh, while also being the person who can you know, snap a corrupt party into line and deal with pressing problems like, like Taiwan or, or a trade war with the United States. Can I probe just a bit more on what you just said about he may, you know, early on this may have been a compensation for relative political bureaucratic weakness, but it's changed since then. You, you actually at the end of the piece leave this a bit more open-ended, and I wonder if we could just explore it a little bit more. You write after, again, summarizing the importance of both the pen and the gun, as you say, uh, where you, you quote from Mao, you need, you need both. You write, this begs the question of whether Xi's heavy reliance on propaganda conveys strength or weakness. Now, you wrote this, you know, article came out in 21. I don't know if you, you wrote it somewhere around then. So, you know, eight or nine years in and you were still leaving open that perhaps the reliance on propaganda might be looked at as a, a continuing crutch for Xi Jinping. Can you just unpack that a, a little bit more, maybe think through for us the case both for and against that? Because I, I could, being so distant from China right now, I honestly have no idea, but I could probably argue both sides of, of the case. Can you do that you know, out loud here, just unpack this a bit more for, for listeners? You said conveys strength or weakness. So does, does his burgeoning cult of personality right now, if we were in Xi Jinping's head, is he thinking, thank God I've got this propaganda machine, otherwise I'd be toast? Or is he thinking, thank God I've got, uh, you know, amongst the many tools that I have to drive forward this powerful agenda, propaganda is a pretty handy one, right? So one is from a position of fragility, a, a sort of a defensive mechanism, keeping the, the barbarians outside of the gates. The other is a, a more maybe confident use of propaganda that sees it as a tool to drive and affect policy. And what I'm thinking here is, your point about the People's Daily not being necessarily a tool for always reaching the masses, it is in many ways a tool for signaling within the bureaucratic system power and influence. I could easily see Xi Jinping really burgeoning this 
cult of personality, and as you say, sort of becoming the personification of government, not because he's worried about being tossed out of office, but because he wants to get something done. And he wants everyone in the system to know there's only one star in the ferment, and that's me. So what I say goes. So different variations on the theme of why you may want a propaganda system that is really at your back pushing you forward. I think in his view, having a lot of media power, being able to utilize propaganda to burnish um, his image is very helpful for getting his way in, in Chinese politics, you know, domestically, certainly. And, and abroad, you know, people aren't going to try to engage with uh, multiple stakeholders hoping that they can change the direction of, of, of China. You know, the, the sense coming from reading of propaganda is if you want to change China, you've got to be talking to Xi because he's the person with ultimate political power. And also, propaganda, as you suggest, does symbolize things in Chinese politics. The People's Daily in particular is, is kind of a transcript that can be read for reading trends. Uh, who's important? Who's not important? You know, Xi Jinping appears day after day after day in the broadsheets of the People's Daily and other newspapers. This is in, intended to show that he is the sole star in the, in the firmament. And, and I think, you know, it, it's, it's, it's going to help him sail forward in, in the face of, you know, possible headwinds uh, with respect to the continuation of his, his leadership. Having the resources of the propaganda system behind him is, is definitely, I think, something that he is very grateful for. I also think it's something that he fought hard to get. I, I look forward to seeing the, a full account of his ability to take over the, the propaganda system. Maybe that will come out uh, at some point in the future. I remember having a conversation years ago with Rod McFarker in which he said, you, know, you should write that story. And I thought, oh, I would love to write that story. But I, I haven't yet got enough data to do so. But, you know, in preparation for this paper, you know, I, I looked at some, some evidence that suggested that he, you know, he had taken to task the former propaganda czar uh, Liu Yunshan. And, you know, he had sidelined uh, the head of the propaganda department, you know, in the, in the years in which he was building up his authority over the media system and about 2015, 2016, he was demanding more loyalty from the media, uh, claiming that the media needed to be surnamed party. So he, he was very much connecting, I think, his political rise and fortunes to his ability to force the media to toe his line. What line would that be? The glorification of Xi, and his initiatives, whether it's the Belt and Road Initiative, his perspectives on uh, unification with Taiwan, uh, and so on. Uh, so the media has been a very powerful resource for him, uh, and I think it's you know something that he's he's gonna he's gonna want to hang on to. It's one of many resources, uh, and I was trying to hint at that in the article. It's important that he was able to conduct military reform as well, both to make the military more viable in the event of a conflict, but also to to put his people in charge of various um, places and to strengthen his authority over the military. Uh, I think he is a follower of Mao in some respects. You know, you've got to have the barrel of the pen and the barrel of the gun pen, you know, uh, relating to propaganda in this instance. Uh, and, you know, there have been other ways in which he's tried to uh, burnish his authority, you know, anti-corruption actions being known to many, anti-poverty has been uh, quite successful, you know, based on a number of uh, observers readings of the situation. Uh, so he's trying to build legitimacy in many ways, but he uses the media, I think, to signal 
where he wants this great ship of state to go. And he tries to overawe, through the media, people that might stand in his way. Uh, can we get in a time machine now and go back to the Mao period? One of the other really interesting you, things you did in this paper is look back to make a comparison of Xi Jinping in, and Mao. Um, and you did it over three similar discrete sort of events or periods. So can you first just tell us how you set up this little sub-experiment within the overall paper, the, the events that you chose for each Mao and Xi, and then just and then walk us through some of the top-line findings there? So here are some findings from my uh, in-depth comparison of people's daily reporting on Mao and Xi. And I'm looking at three different types of, of crises. Uh, I'm looking at foreign policy crises. I'm looking at uh, domestic rectification campaigns and a national mass mobilization. So three uh, crises facing both leaders during times in which they had great power in the Chinese political system. So if you look at the foreign crises for uh, Mao and Xi, I look at coverage for the month after China decided to send troops to fight in the Korean War. And there I see something surprising. Mao received less mention than the untimely demise of Ren Bishu, a Politburo member and diplomat and a former long marcher. So uh, they're celebrating or commemorating the loss of a comrade more than they're talking about what Mao Zedong has to say about the Korean War. And then in that same uh, time period, a large number of other national leaders appeared in the headlines, although uh, less frequently than Mao. And in descending order, they included such people as Premier Zhou Enlai, the writer Lu Xun, uh, and several leaders with stature as CCP stalwarts and military commanders, such as Liu Shaoqi and Zhu De. In People's Daily Headlines during the, the U.S.-China trade war, the Xi Jinping comparison, Xi soars above his contemporary leaders, appearing four times more frequently than Premier Li Keqiang, and over six times more than his main enforcer in the anti-corruption campaign, Wang Qishan. Further, only five national leaders received any mention in headlines, a narrower group of individuals than was the case when China entered the Korean War. Now, if we look at the two national rectification campaigns, we see something similar. Premier Zhou Enlai and not Mao received the most coverage during the first month of the Hundred Flowers campaign in 1956, and a number of other leaders featured prominently, including Chen Yi, Song Qingling, that's the widow of Sun Yat-sen, Guo Mo Ruo, uh, Zhu De, Nie Rongzhen, and Liu Shaoqi. Whereas during Xi Jinping's anti-corruption campaign in 2014, she would tower above other figures, followed by Li Keqiang, Wang Qishan, Wang Yang, and Li Zhanshu. No other national leaders appeared in the headlines of the People's Daily that month. If we look at a comparison of Mao and Xi during times of national mobilization, we see the most similarity in the amount of coverage that they got. At the outset of the Cultural Revolution, Mao receives nearly six times the coverage of Zhou Enlai and over twice as much as that of all other national leaders combined. So clearly during the Cultural Revolution, which is a formative time for Xi, incidentally, there was a movement in place that was designed to help Mao and his supporters aggregate and utilize the power of the People's Daily to lead the country in a different and ultimately very destructive direction. But what about Xi during his so-called People's War against COVID? Xi was mentioned eight times more than Li Keqiang and four times more frequently than all other central leaders who appeared in the headlines. 
scholar of Chinese high politics, uh, Li Cheng, has written that Mao was seen as a godlike figure, especially during the Cultural Revolution. But COVID area Xi Jinping had the People's Daily trumpeting his main melody loudly enough to rival coverage of Mao during the height of Mao's power, at least based on this, this case study approach. So what does that tell us about differences in power between Mao, Xi? I'm wondering the extent to which you talked about the prevalence of, of other leaders, but also writers like Lu Xun. Or does that, does that tell us as much about a, an evolution of political culture? I realize it's hard to know, but what do you take away from that? I take away that she wants to be perceived as a much greater leader than his contemporaries. And I also think it says something about Chinese politics in contemporary times, that he's able to achieve this, presumably through his influence over the editorial decisions of the People's Daily. During Mao's time, this was a harder task. Uh, Mao was surrounded by people who were heroes too. They'd been on the long march, you know, they'd fought against the Japanese, they'd fought against the nationalists, they worked together to found a country to boot out the foreigners. There were a lot of people with revolutionary cred. And there was a, a, frankly, what I perceived as a more collective approach to political authority and maintaining, you know, the People's Republic as a political system. Mao was the paramount leader of his time, undoubtedly. He was the, the final decision maker on many things. And when he felt like the party was in his way, he, you know, he would launch um, the Cultural Revolution to use the power of the people to regain authority over the political system. I, I feel like she is trying to learn and practice some things um, from uh, his observation of the Mao period, uh, particularly with respect to the use of the cult of personality, which was something that we saw emerge very strongly from Mao during the Cultural Revolution. Interestingly for me, in, in writing this paper, I saw that you know, she gets a lot of coverage uh, in the People's Daily. When his coverage is most comparable to that of Mao was when Mao was needing the most coverage uh, to launch his 10-year Cultural Revolution. You know, she, uh, in fighting COVID, you know, similarly took things very seriously and, and wanted to you know, be seen as, as, as the hero in this, this, the country's great test. Um, so I, 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 see, I see some continuities here. I also see the importance of changes in the political system, too. Uh, I think she doesn't have what you might call natural competitors in the way that Mao did. And I found it, you know, refreshing to see that many other important figures received mention in the People's Daily during the Mao period. That was one of the, the unexpected findings, actually, in writing up this study. I, I think that's such an interesting and important point on the real vast differences in the current makeup of the Communist Party under Xi versus versus Mao, or, or, or Deng as well, right? I mean, there was an enforced level of some collective governance given the extraordinary, you know, credibility, as you say, of some of these individuals. I mean, we don't, I think in our popular discourse and imagination now, it's, it's Mao Zedong from, you know, 49 to 76 alone. But of course, I'm not sure we understand how powerful and influential a finger, figure like Judo was, you know, to the point where Ju and Mao's names was always together as, as you know, two characters. And I, I don't quite have a handle on this yet, but I would love to understand more how she really being the first post-49 leader to move into power with no 
there's not there wasn't elders like Chun Yun around. You know, you had you had Zhang Zemin, but really that's that's a, that's about it. Uh, Zhu Rongji, some others, but there was no figures comparable to these revolutionary elders who had dominated both the the de jure and the de facto system for so much of the the PRC's history. And I don't. It's it's kind of clear that that lack of elders breathing down his neck or anyone who had any revolutionary credentials whatsoever. I mean, they were all past, right? How that opened up space for Xi Jinping to navigate. And then, as you write about in the paper, it just seems like he just weaponized the sense of crisis in the party so effectively and right out of the gate. You know, he almost sensed that there was an opportunity for malleability here because there was a level of anxiety and concern in the, in, in the party Bushy lie, color revolutions, the Wenzhou train crash in 2011. You, know, you just had this, this real kind of cascade of events, and Xi Jinping just ran into that. And I think critically, what's different though, he ran into that environment full steam without without the opposition previous leaders would have faced with a Judah like like figure or Chan Yun, you know, sort of in the wings, able to intervene. I I found it fascinating in looking at the you know, frequency of mention of Xi and other leaders, that as soon as Xi took power, Hu Jintao disappeared. Hu Jintao, not seen as a particularly strong leader, you know, among the paramount leaders we might rattle off from um, the People's Republic, Mao, Deng, Jiang, <clears throat> uh, for example, but who was around for 10 years. And he was around during a time of great prosperity for China uh, and also uh, during a time when China didn't have really serious conflicts uh, with other great powers. I mean, they, they weren't yet real serious. Maybe they should have been in retrospect, but they weren't. And, and, and who was certainly someone with a lot of connections who had put his people in a number of different uh, institutions and probably wanted them to hang around and continue have, to have influence in Chinese politics. He effectively disappeared uh, from reports in the People's Daily. This isn't that all, all that uncommon of a phenomenon. There seems to be a tendency uh, in People's Daily recover, uh, coverage of leaders to stop talking about them once they've left the Politburo Standing Committee. They do what I call this you know, remarkable disappearing act. And, and you know, that, that, that is very fascinating. But what it means is that other leaders like who don't have any media power, at least in the People's Daily, to contest to contest Xi, and People's Daily isn't isn't really unrepresentative of reports uh, throughout you know Chinese official media. I mean, Xi Jinping is the you know he he is the headline. He's on the the front page of of every newspaper and increasingly magazines. He's everywhere you look in the Chinese media today. And other leaders are not there. That's that's deliberate. But it means that they're, they they lack a position to engage with him publicly, I suppose. Uh, but, you know, that hasn't really been the way that Chinese politics has unfolded anyway. It seemed that, the you know, with the exception of the 1980s, most important debates have been internal. Yeah, I mean, you get the occasional kind of low way giving an interview where he'll make some, you know, comments that are a modest critique of, you know, of economic policy. You know, actually, I want to to... to give you your Friday back, so I'll wrap up here. But I, I, I wanted to ask you kind of a final question, and this is very speculative, but how far does this go? And I mean that how far does, you know, we've almost seen this consistent 
linear upward trajectory of Xi's control of propaganda, but also his prevalence. Uh, I, I don't know if there's research out on this, but do we get to a tipping point where one more unit of cult of personality actually begins to erode by just jamming too much down everyone's throat? You, you've, you talk a bit in the, in the piece about effectiveness of, of propaganda or how it affects public opinion. So there does seem to be some sort of tipping point here in some of the survey data. But just your speculation for, you know, we're going to see a third term, maybe a fourth of, of Xi Jinping, no real signs that he's pulling back from his elevation within the national consciousness and, and the media. Can you just tease out where you think this goes and what forces might shape this one way or the other? Well, I see him continuing to try to use um, media power to uh, achieve his objectives, uh, and I, I see it contributing to his authority going forward. And if you read the media as a transcript, you don't see too much opposition to his authority. What I'm less certain of is how the creation of this cult of personality is being read by people in China. Uh, at one point, I did a study that used focus groups and a public opinion survey uh, to look at people's support for propaganda uh, coming out of uh, official uh, sources. And what I found that time may be of, of use in, in thinking through the answer to your question about the effects of propaganda over the long term. What I found was that educated people, people with a university level education or, or above, were quite capable of deconstructing uh, media messages. And it was almost as if the more educated they were, the more cynical they were, which is what you would expect to see, I suppose. And people of average education levels tended to be more accepting of the direction of propaganda and people with lower levels of education, like elementary level uh, education, uh, particularly women, in the case of the research that I did, uh, were more likely to uh, you know, embrace and reflect uh, on the propaganda as serving as an important guide in the way that they should think about Chinese politics. So I guess I think that this, you know, this cult of personality is going to uh, work with some in China and really not work with others. So the fragility of this effort uh, may crack uh, when more media messaging reaches people in universities or people who, uh, you know, are, are, are well-educated or inside the system. They may recognize that Xi's authority is very dangerous to contest, but not, you know, deeply, you know, support it or, or, or even, uh, you know, uh, possibly develop opposition to it. As I think about Xi and his future, I, I, I tend to think about Mao and his end, right? So if, if Xi's period is going to come to an end, will Mao's end tell us anything about how Xi's period is likely to wrap up? Well, the Mao period didn't end until he died. And thereafter, China would go through a radical, almost 180, with a change of power, first to Hua Guofeng, a transitory figure, and then to Deng Xiaoping, uh, who, with support from other leaders, you know, engaged in a kind of uh, pluralistic but somewhat, somewhat oligarchic attempt to reorient the country toward development that would eventually make it much stronger and Deng was notable in that he really tried to improve China's foreign relations with other important powers in the political system. So I, I guess I feel like 
I don't know what will lead to the end of, of Xi's period. He's not with us forever. No one is. But I wouldn't be surprised if when you know, his cult of personality runs its course, we may see a shift to a China of a very different sort, just like we did following the Mao period. Yeah, I, 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 as you were speaking, I was just thinking about the, and you, you write about this in the article, but that the app, the Shui Xi Changguo, the you know, Study Xi Strong Country app, and I feel like some of these efforts almost introduce antibodies unintentionally into the system, anecdotally at least, any of my sort of friends who in China who have to choke down this sawdust coming from the propaganda authorities, including those who had to sort of get on the app and do their requisite number of points for the day, it induced a level of cynicism which may not have been there prior to being forced to work on this, you know, this, this app. So to your point, which I think is really good, the signs of antibodies may not be evident today, but you, you, know, you take an increasingly sophisticated worldly population, you jam down propaganda, which certainly is different from the 1950s and 60s, but not totally dissimilar in its fairly blunt, ham-fisted messaging. That's not a great long-term synergy there. So I, I think that's a really good point and for how we should just because on the visible surface we don't see any ripples may, may not mean that they, they aren't there. But anyway, Ashley, I really enjoyed the paper very much and really enjoyed this, this conversation. And I, I recommend uh, folks go, uh, don't take our word for it here on the podcast, that go, um, go read the paper. And actually the entire, as Ashley mentioned, this is an entire special issue and there's a lot of great papers in this. And this sort of framework analysis of thinking about Xi and power within Xi's administration and, and in China, I think is just going to be critical as we move to a, a third term at the same time where we're getting an increasingly opaque system, differentiating signal from noise, making sure we've got accurately calibrated, you know, uh, Geiger counters as we try to figure out what's going on is, is going to be very important. So the work, you know, actually that you and your you know, fellow political scientists, sociologists, you know, economists, everyone in academia who's doing to help us sharpen our tools for assessing Xi's next 732 years in power, um, I think is just uh, incredibly helpful. So thanks for the conversation and thank you for your work. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, the Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org podcasts to see our full catalog 